listening to Rootbound, a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside. Rootbound is sponsored by Bark. No, not the sound a dog makes. Bark is without question the best part of a tree. No other part of a tree comes close. Paid for by Barkpack. Grüezi miteinander und willkommen to Rootbound. My name is Steve. Uh, I'm actually in Switzerland right now, and for the next few episodes, there's probably going to be at least one or two segments recorded here in Switzerland. And for this first episode, I'm, I'm actually standing in a supermarket, and I thought it'd be fun to kind of go through some of the fruits and vegetables that are in the supermarket and translate them into German. A little bit of a German vocabulary lesson, but related to plants. So I'm looking here at Knoblauch. Knoblauch is garlic. Also. Apologies for any pronunciation errors, German speakers out there. Um, I'll do my best. Uh, I'm also looking here at Zwiebeln. Zwiebeln means onion. Then we have something we've covered on the show before, rucola. The Swiss call arugula rucola, like many other countries in this area, but they don't call it rocket. And then we have pepperoni, and Americans think pepperoni is some kind of you know, sausage you put on pizza, but in Switzerland and actually Italy, pepperoni means bell pepper. Then we have lauch. Lauch means leek. We have blumenkohl, which means cauliflower. And here's another plant we talked about on the show before, flaumen. Flaumen is plum. And right next to the plums is rhabarber. And that is the subject of today's show, or at least one of the plants we're going to talk about in a minute. Rhubarber is rhubarb, and our guest today has lots of interesting facts to say about rhubarb. So let's get right to it. Jetzt spare und profitiere. Viel tolle Aktionen mit runde Prise. Hi, Monica. How's it going? It's going well, Steve. How are you? Pretty good. Thanks for joining me. Do you have a plant to share with us today? I do. Today I bring to you the humble rhubarb. Oh, so um, good. I, yeah, the, I, I know very little about rhubarb except for, yeah, so I'm very excited and I, I think I've got some inklings that you are like the right person to talk about rhubarb. Well, full disclosure, I was a very late comer to rhubarb. Um, you know, it was always the thing I would dodge to get to the strawberries and the strawberry rhubarb pie. Like it was the thing to be eschewed. Um, so I think it's one of those just later in life conversions. Um, and that being said, it's it's been relegated to such a very specific kind of, you know, Americana prairie home companion rhubarb pie. You know, there's this vision of it, um, but it's incredibly global and it's got a really long, really interesting history. So uh, I bring it to you as a, as a humble student of a plant that keeps on teaching. Well, wonderful. Maybe I can be a late in life rhubarb person as well. Let's see. Um, I, I will yeah, win yeah. you over. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you can start about what, what uh, you know, why it, it is important to you and what's your personal story with rhubarb. Oh, that's so interesting. So, all right. I know, you know, folks will be <laughs> listening. I, after college, moved back home with my family and going to Sunday church was always a thing. And there became a moment where church put on a farmer's market. 
and I could go to church, but I could work at the farmer's market. And that was my like my sidelong <laughs> way of being a good steward of the earth and a good steward of community and not having to go to mass. Um, and it was beautiful. And, and we were, you know, working with the, the plants and the crops and, and frequently paid, you know, taking home our like $6 worth of produce. And suddenly I had rhubarb upon rhubarb, and I didn't know what to do with it. Again, because it was always the thing to dodge in the strawberry rhubarb pie. Um, similarly, that year, I decided to make a New Year's resolution. I had two choices. I could learn to turn a cartwheel or I could enter the county fair in, in any category. Um, <laughs> and I decided cartwheels were maybe an uphill battle, but I would try the county fair. Uh, and it turned out that I've, I've got a knack for jams and jellies and pickles. Uh, I've never um, learned to very- do cartwheel either, by the way. <laughs> So Listen, I mean, there, there are going to be a lot of, <laughs> lot of New Year's in the future. So it will always be another resolution to make. Yeah. Um, I know. And wrists are important at, in your yeah. 30s. I, I can't yeah. compromise my <laughs> wrists right now. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's a lot of weight to put um, on those the, wrists. A when, lot when of you're, weight. When you're, when you're six foot tall like I am. And like, Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah your center of gravity. Yeah, when you're little, a cartwheel, <laughs> it's like, it's like no, well, I never learned when I was little either. But yeah, I, you learn a lot about uh, about. Uh, just the you know how much a difference a few feet makes when you are falling oh my gosh yeah yeah. (laughs) not even like even simple things like i was like oh i'll get a hula hoop that's a whole different (laughs) you're you're not the same as a you know five five person to compared to a little four foot person it's ridiculous indeed Indeed. Um, anyway back to rhubarb no (laughs) the 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 very first thing i made was i just had a lot of rhubarb and i figured this is a thing to preserve um, and it really was that kind of magic moment of realizing that that first scent of spring, you know, suddenly you take off the lid of your mason jar and it could be November and suddenly I've got this jar of spring and it smells like strawberries and it smells like rhubarb. And, and I, you know, it was a thing. It's I don't mind being bad at things, but this is something that suddenly I was naturally good at. Mm-hmm. Um, and it felt good to be, you know, working directly with plants and then putting them in jars. And months later, a year later, it still felt the same. Um, so rhubarb kind of became my my companion uh, for all the all the jars since and all the all the sticky stovetop since. Uh, but that's my personal connection to rhubarb. But, but as a plant, it certainly stands on its own. Yeah, maybe we can get into some fun facts and dazzling details. Because for me, just my impression of rhubarb, I know it's used in sweet things, but when you look at it, it looks like it just looks like uh, uh, chard, right? But it's a it very does, different. It, it, it's a very different plant. It is. It, it's what's so interesting is it's actually in the knotweed buckwheat family, the the polygonaceae. Oh. So the thing that we're eating, it's the stalk. Botanically, it's the the petiole, which is really the connective stalk between the rhizome and the leaves. Um, I think if people are familiar with rhubarb, the other thing they may know about it is that the the leaves are toxic. Yeah. Um, I don't want to misquote your your lovely Swiss naturalist that the, the poison <laughs> is in the dose. Uh-huh. Um, what makes rhubarb leaves so toxic is the the concentration of oxalic acid, which is oh, okay. really it's not not great for a person's kidneys. Uh, that being said, the amount of oxalic acid you would need to kill a person uh, it's, it's about like twenty five grams, uh, which you would get from having eleven pounds of rhubarb leaves. So this is not something you're gonna you know, incidentally uh, uh, murder grandma with. Uh, it, it's interesting because rhubarb, it, it likes to cross-pollinate and historically it was first used medicinally. Mm. What we're eating now is is garden rhubarb. Um, 
its Latin name is Reum Rebarbarum, and that's the same Barbarum as barbaric, barbarian. It's attributed, it's always been attributed to, to someone else, to somewhere else. Oh, A lot of that comes from its history of being trafficked along the Silk Road. So you'd have writings, um, you know, they're Chinese uh, medicinal journals from, you know, 2200 years ago talking about using the root specifically. It was a great laxative. It would purge your humors, you know, all things you want. Got it. Um, but Keep on as it became, humors. absolutely. Listen, you can't <laughs> never get complacent with your humor, Steve. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but as it became trafficked along the Silk Road, it it's price-wise, it was comparable to saffron, to cinnamon, to pearls. Oh. So, right, and exactly. And for us, it's this humble little stocky plant. You've got to uh-huh. temper with sugar and... So it's it's really fascinating. Um, ben Franklin has this incredible letter. He had a pen pal. I don't know if you're familiar with John Bartram, no. who was a, a horticulturist and a, a naturalist who lived in Philadelphia when Ben Franklin was in London. And they had this incredible pen pal seed swap relationship for, for a number of years. Um, and there's this, it's January 11th, Ben Franklin wrote a letter uh, enclosing some rhubarb seeds. Uh, this letter, it's a little bit more prominently known as the letter where Ben Franklin has encountered tofu for the first time, oh. <laughs> which it's fantastic. You should read it. It's He yeah. understands it to be a, a kind of cheese made from Chinese garbanzos, which uh-huh. it's a whole, whole other episode. Um, but you can tell kind of horticulturally, people are getting interested in rhubarb, which at this point, less medicinally, now more... Um, you know, it's an it's an eating plant by now. Uh, so many hybrids; it's really hard to kind of track the progeny and the mm-hmm. heritage of certain strains. Um, that being said, I know you're a traveled fellow, Steve. Are you familiar with the rhubarb triangle? I am not. No. Okay. Is it anything like the Bermuda well, Triangle? Can you get lost in it? A little, a little bit, a little <laughs> okay, bit. Yeah. Um, at one point, it was about thirty square miles of Yorkshire in England, okay. um, between Leeds, Bradford, and Wakefield. Okay. And these, you know, rhubarb rhubarb is attributed to many geographical places. It's really taken hold in Yorkshire. That great mm-hmm. rainy weather. There's a lot of horse manure, which just makes the soil perfect for uh-huh. rhubarb. Um, and much like champagne is a is a product with a designated origin, Yorkshire rhubarb has become its own thing. Um, and that's because you can force it. You can grow it in darkness, which, you know, obviously it's limiting photosynthesis. And the plant is going to depend on the glucose it's stored in its root system to make a really sweet, really like tender stalk. So uh, the Yorkshire Triangle became this rhubarb hotspot. And they used to run like the overnight rhubarb train from Leeds to London, um, wow. which is this enormous. And can you, if you can imagine, the only reason it really died in popularity is because uh, World War II sugar rations. You're not going to just have a nice little stock of rhubarb without some sugar to, to uh-huh, mild it out. Uh-huh. But because suddenly sugar wasn't really you know, on hand the way it used to be, that trade died down. So what was once 30 square miles... Today, it's about nine square miles, but it's still this cultural hotspot in England. Museums and cultural festivals. It's fascinating. I have been to Leeds twice, but I somehow did not fall into the rhubarb. Didn't stumble into the (laughs) rhubarb. I was in the, you know, the the English ale part of Leeds. Oh, sure. The best beer I've ever had is in Leeds, but next time I got to focus on the on the rhubarb part. that's a, i mean that's an all-encompassing crawl but Indeed. i mean exactly as you say they're rhubarb gin it's oh, horticulturally yeah. it, it lends itself to a lot of things 
Um, you mentioned it's a great kind of, it's also known as pie plant um, mm-hmm. because it pairs so well with a lot of other fruits. Uh, that being said, it's also, it's a great thing to cook with savory. I make my best chutneys are rhubarb mm. chutneys. Mm. Um, I think a lot of folks like it with pork dishes, but I think if you just got a nice strong cheddar cheese, a rhubarb mm. chutney, you know, it's, it, it's once it's out of the pies, it still stands on its own quite a bit. Let's maybe talk about the flavor a little bit, because I have to say, I am very yeah. unaware of rhubarb. I've had maybe strawberry rhubarb pie a couple times, but I don't think I could talk about, like, what is the flavor of rhubarb? Like, oh. What, what just, you know, and this is probably people listening to this know about this, but I don't. <laughs> what what does it do for the, for the flavor of dishes? And yeah, what is its essence? Sure. So if you were to just take that petiole, that stalk straight mm-hmm. from your garden, it's going to have almost almost a, like a dense celery consistency. Mm-hmm. So really stringy, really firm, um, extremely tart and astringent. It's the kind of thing where it feels like it just takes the tartar off your teeth. Mm-hmm. So it's got a real bite to it, which is why that forced rhubarb grown in darkness um, is so highly prized because it's a little bit more mild, a little bit less astringent. Um, what's so great about it is as soon as you kind of temper it with, let's say, a blueberry with with apples or strawberries, it, it gets more mild and it starts to mm-hmm. break down a little bit. You can you can get a real slump to it because those fibers start to break down. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I know some folks who just have patches of rhubarb, and again, it's perennial. So once you plant it, mm. you're 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 gonna have rhubarb for a while. Um, some folks will just dip it in sugar and have a munch oh, the way you might nice. with celery. Yeah. Um, I do not know that I am quite that brave, uh-huh. but it makes a lovely, simple syrup. You can, um, I've, I've got some in a jar with a little bit of gin. Um, it's beautiful and, and just a little bit botanical once you kind of let it sit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a little, little sour patchy at the best of times. Uh, but it's not especially high in pectin, that kind of structure that gives a little bit of body to something cooked. Mm-hmm. But it, it plays well with others, I think. And, and because those fibers break down as you cook, it becomes less less prominent in your in your dish or in your final product as you're working with it, which, you know, it's it's uh, it gets along well with everything else in the dish, which is really, you know, in its favor. Really interesting. Yeah. So I guess that you're saying it adds a tartness, but probably some other like there's probably some other just rhubarb flavors, not just sourness, right? That, that make it. Yeah, no, no, special. far from, far from just sour. Yeah. It's, but it's one of those things that's so prominent on your tongue. It's hard to kind of get into the mm-hmm. other, like mm-hmm. the connotations that it brings. Um, but, but it's, it's pure springtime. Uh, that being said, it, it does require those cold temperatures to germinate. So mm-hmm. it's one of those plants that you'll get a, a, a burst of growth in springtime. And then at least in my experience, uh, probably towards September, October, you'll get one more kind of burst of growing. Um, but it's, it always feels like a vote of confidence as far as growing it. You can grow straight from the rhizome. You can plant the crown in the ground. I've had more success growing from seed, which apparently mm-hmm. is not as common, but, but dumb luck. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, it's one of those things where you plant and then you just can't touch it for years. So it's the mm. third year you can start to harvest stalks. Oh, wow. So here at my house, you know, that was my, my kind of vote of confidence for finally having a garden and having a yard. Some things you can put in the ground and a couple months later, you know, here's arugula, mm-hmm. here's tomato. But to see this rhubarb for the past two years sprouting and growing, and it's it's so beautiful. It erupts from the ground with this big furled leaf and then this pink stalk. And to see it and to know, like, great, it that indicates the soil is happy, there's enough sun, there's enough water. And then to just look at it and not touch it and to think, 
okay, that could be a pie, that could be a chutney, that could be a jam. Mm -hmm. But this is, you know, like two weeks from now, I finally I can touch it. So it's been such a kind of delayed gratification. So uh, cool. Really demands some patience, but I'm so ready to start harvesting. I better get some planted soon if I want to get into rhubarb, you know? Like, yeah, it, that's... yeah, rhubarb and asparagus really, it's it, yeah. a pie plant, but it's patience plant too. You really uh-huh. do have to wait. That's a good one. <laughs> I, I have a few other plants like that. They're mostly the fruit trees. I've got a, two American plums that, you know, are in their fourth year. Maybe they're going to fruit this year. There's a lot of flowers. Oh, we'll see what happens. Yeah. And then I think you've heard another episode, my hazelnut bushes, where I got one hazelnut last year. But maybe this yep. year I'll get like four. But yeah, the patience is pretty interesting with that. But in general, those plants that require patience are also the ones that uh, produce for a very long time, right? So I guess exactly. rhubarb, you can be harvesting it for years and years once it's ready to go. <laughs> It is. And to me, it was always an element of envy because people, you know, in New England, it grows beautifully in Wisconsin and Minnesota. And people talk so casually about this patch of rhubarb. And I just it wasn't a thing I had access to until Mm -hmm. I started working at the farmer's market. And suddenly, you know, I think it's it's only recently that that I bought a house and have a yard. And it's kind of Mm -hmm. like, what are the priorities? And it feels like a vote of confidence, you know, going from renting, you're just thinking month to month to month to month, maybe 12 months at a time. But now to have to be able to kind of create a vision of it, it sounds funny to say it's a priority, but but it's a vote of confidence. And it's that kind of extra measure of grace that I will be here in three years. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it's a sense of permanence that I kind of yeah. hadn't had. And it, it felt like a really nice way to honor that by putting rhubarb in the ground. So you're saying you're going to do your first harvest this this year? This is, this like... is, this is my spring. Yeah, this wow. is my harvest. That's very exciting. It'll be exciting. Yep. Long time, lo- it feels like a long time coming, but honestly, it's flown by. I, I, I could wait another three years. It's fine. Sure. That's, <laughs> that's really cool. Um, is there any other fun facts or dazzling details we missed about the wondrous rhubarb? Actually, I would be doing a disservice if I did not mention that in Zoroastrianism, um, the first man and woman came from a rhubarb plant. Oh, uh, wow. There's this, this first creation, um, a, a giant named Gaiamard, who was felled by an evil spirit, Araman, and from his body sprung a rhubarb plant. And from this rhubarb plant came the first man, the first woman, Masha and Mashayana. And then they went on to have 15 twins who populated the world. Which again, wow. it's it's so interesting to hear a creation story in this plant that we just think of, you know, Garrison Keeler and blue checkered <laughs> tablecloths. Uh, uh-huh. But it really has been this kind of worldwide plant, either medicinally or on people's tables or the creation of all mankind. So it's it's far from a far from a novelty. Careful, sir. Those leaves are poisonous. You know the saying: rhubarb red, eat away. Rhubarb green, don't eat them. Uh, do, you, do you mind if I have a, a plant <laughs> this year with you? I've been waiting all week. I can't wait. Great. So, I, I, you know, I, I'm always trying to pick a plant that maybe either applies to the person I'm talking to or maybe can surprise the person I'm talking to. And you, I know, are quite a plant person. And so I was trying to think about maybe there's a plant that you don't know much about. But maybe I'm wrong because I'm not sure. But um, I used to live in California when I was young. Have you, you have much experience in California? A very limited Lego okay, land, cool. which, which, uh, what a great first exposure. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So when, so when I was a kid, my mom was in the Navy and we lived in this town called 29 Palms, California, which is in the middle of the Mojave My husband Desert. was born there. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I, oh. I never knew another person could be from there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I lived there for about four years and maybe I'll, I'll 
reset a little bit. We're going to come back to 29 Palms. But um, a number of years ago, I was in Joshua Tree National Park, which is near 29 Palms. My dad lived in Palm Springs at the time. And we were out in 29 Palms or, or Joshua Tree National Park. And I just started thinking about because I'd been thinking about this more and more about I really into like what foods are from a place. Mm-hmm. And I was reading like a historical sign about the indigenous people who lived in Joshua Tree National Park. And I was like, well, what did, what did people eat back yeah. then? And one of the things that it mentioned was um, the California fan palm, which is my plant. The Latin name is Washingtonium filifera. And we'll get into that in a minute. Um, but but the, I was like, wait a minute. Why have I never heard of this California fan palm? And what I realized yeah. is it's everywhere. It is a very is it, is it that common, iconic palm or maybe not quite. It depends. The interesting thing is, and this is what I also can't believe I didn't know this. I lived in California so long. Uh, the California fan palm is the only native palm tree to the western part of this continent. You're kidding. There's only one native palm. It's also the largest native palm to this whole continent. So the majority of palm trees you see in California, the really long, tall ones that yeah. are like you know. Hollywood, those are not native to this continent at all. They're from the Middle East. So many of the palm trees that were brought to the Los Angeles area that you think of iconically as palm trees are not from there. But there is a fair amount of the of the California fan palm mixed in with all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's often called uh, the petticoat palm because its fronds do not fall off. So they create this like petticoat around it. So you'll see a palm tree at the top, but it's very like bushy. Um, yeah around it and that's that's the california fan palm um but what i what i didn't know is that it also creates fruit and it has these Mm. little tiny there you know it's i think it's similar to to the i've never tried it which is you know it's just i'm really interested in these foods that we have just ignored you know yeah and there's this tree that is everywhere in california but no one ever thinks about the fruit and uh from what i gather it's a little bit like how a consistency of a date but they're much smaller with a seed in the middle Mm -hmm. But they create these big, like, strings of them that can be up to 30 pounds. Oh, my God. Which is really amazing. Yeah. Um, and, um, you, you know, the, from what I've read, it, you, there is, you know, traditional use was making them into, like, a, like a, like a, not really a bread, but smushing them up and ter- drying them into, like, a little cake, you know, a little dried cake. Yeah, but yeah. there's also, like, sweet beverages made from them. Um, and, you know, it's just weird that people can live in a place and never, like, taste the food that like this was yes. the staple food of this area for millennia and like nobody in california has ever tasted it or tried it and it's also just everywhere it's on the streets my, my dad had one in his yard and i saw the fruits on the ground i was like this is the this is the, the thing <laughs> and he, anyway uh so so that's that's really interesting and that's when i started you know reading about it a little bit more and um and then how did this happen i i, I basically have had like these just realizations that started from learning about the California fan palm that kind of made me realize like maybe how incurious I was as a kid or maybe just how the mm. American uh, uh, educational system is a failure or, or it also speaks to like, uh, uh, you know, colonialism and erasure of indigenous cultures. It's this whole big thing, but it Absolutely. comes to the fact that 29 palms is called 29 palms after the California fan palm. I lived there and I never knew this. Be curious if your husband knows some of these facts because I don't know if it was just me. I mean, I've asked my sister about this, asked my parents about this. They didn't know a lot of these facts. Um, you know, when I was a kid, it was kind of a joke that it was called Tornado Palms because it was the desert and right, there wasn't right. really palm trees everywhere. And that's because palm trees 
in the desert, they grow in oases. Mm-hmm. And there is an oasis in Tornado Palms. It's just not super obvious. Um, and and, and it, I realize now that it is part of the Joshua Tree National Park system. There's this little spot where there's an oasis. Um, it is was known uh, as the Oasis of Mara to indigenous people there who lived there for a long time. Um, and it was eventually, you know, stolen by the U.S. government, sold to a railway mm. company. Very long history. And then eventually national parks had it. And there is an interesting history of how... Um, of how the uh, the Twin Am Palms Band of Mission Indians has has been able to kind of reestablish themselves there. There is a reservation there that's small, but it's growing, and it feels like things are potentially uh, getting to a point where there's more recon- recognition of the mm-hmm. indigenous people of that area. But when I was a kid there, I didn't know any of this stuff. In fact, the elementary school I went to was called Palm Vista. And when I was looking at a map, I realized that, yes, from the playground, you can look out and see the Oasis of Mara and the palm trees. And I had no idea. No one in my school ever said, why is this school called Palm Vista? Getting into yeah. the history of, of, of this interesting tree and the people who relied upon it. Um, and maybe maybe I just missed it. I only went there for a couple of years, so maybe they covered that in like previous grades. I'm not sure. <laughs> the orientation materials, yeah. <laughs> right. But I was just like, I never knew. I never even questioned why it was called Palm Vista. Um I, you know, and yeah, I just feel like I, I lived in this place for so long and didn't have any understanding of, of, you know, this interesting tree, but also about like the people who relied on it and the history of this place. And it's very focused around this tree and, and, and the oasis. So that, that was, I literally had my mind blown. And I was like calling my sister. I was like, do you know what the oasis oh. of Mara is? Have you heard of this? And like, nobody knew. So maybe it was just my insular family. Maybe it, it just, you know, it seems like, you know, with the internet now, people are like understanding this stuff more. But I feel like when I was a kid, it was like, yeah. Anyway, I, I really had my eyes opened about that and really uh, learning more about the history of this place and this plant. Um, I can get into some other facts about the tree, but it, yeah, it sounded Please. like Please. Well, yeah. apart, from the, apart from the fruit, were the fronds also made use of? Absolutely, yeah. Actually, that gets back into the Latin name, which is Washingtonian filifera. And Washingtonia is weird. <laughs> Apparently, a German botanist decided to name it after George Washington even though it is only from a part A of, tip of the cap, yeah. Yes, indeed. And there's only a couple Washingtonians uh, palms, and they're all from, like, you know, the the Mexico and the South West mm. Desert. So, uh, very strange. But filifera means, um, means threads. And so the fronds are really good, apparently, to make uh, things where you need thread. Also, the fronds mm. are, are used to you sew the fronds together to make, you know, roofing. Apparently, they were really great to make sandals from. Um, so the the, the plant also had a lot of use for just like construction and, and textiles as well, which is another thing that we have, you know, don't think about anymore. Um, sure. So, so that, that I, that I found really interesting and, and, and the, the role of an oasis, you know, is a really interesting one for me. Cause if you, I don't know if you've ever seen an oasis in the desert, but no. it is a really, I mean, you, it's kind of a trope in like cartoons and stuff, but it is yeah, really like yeah. that. Like you can turn the corner in a, in a, in a valley and all of a sudden there's water and grass and trees and shade and the trees have food and you can build stuff and um it's it's a really pretty magical thing and and uh yeah i highly recommend checking out oasis if if you can see one because yeah they're super cool um what other facts do i have here did the did the introduction of the other non-native palms did that disrupt or jeopardize the the fan palm 
I, I don't think so because it actually is widely cultivated. It is also a cultivated okay. tree and it is used a lot, yeah. but I just feel like everyone lumps palms together and people don't mm -hmm. think about this. And so, yeah, you think about palm trees and the beach and, but really the palm tree of California is a desert plant. And it's That's from incredible. there. And I think, you know, uh, the places where, it, I think the places where it grows, you know, naturally, that is a little bit more of a challenge, you know, wa water issues and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, human displacement and things like that can, can lead sure. to damage. Also fire. They are very fire resistant, actually. That's one thing I found very interesting. Like they can withstand a lot of fire, but there's a point where, mm. they, where they can't. Um, yeah. Uh, there's actually a very notorious uh, arson of the Oasis of Amara several years back. And there's been this like um, movement to try to like rejuvenate uh, the Oasis of Amara in 29 Palms because of that. But but a lot of the trees did survive because they, they, they're they uh, built like that. So, uh, yeah, that that's, I think, all I have to say about the, the California fan palm. But I think it's just this re really interesting thing about I wish when I was younger I had, I, ha I had more thought about plants and I had considered more things about plants. And having this thing of where I lived in a place that was so connected to this particular tree where like the elementary yeah. school I went to was named after it. And I still had no idea. Um, and I, that's one of the things I just have, I've been enjoying about this podcast is being able to learn those new things. But this is one that really like stuck with me and really made me nostalgic, really made me want to learn more. And, um, and yeah, so that, that's the California fan palm. That's incredible. Thank you for sharing that with me. I'm, I'm going to keep, you know, as if I haven't been looking with open eyes, but it's one of those things, the naming of places. It's not all like, um, what is it in Arrested Development, Sudden Valley? You know, it feels <laughs> yes. like you're pulling these you're pulling these names out of a hat, but it's not just some real estate developer. These are real people, real places, real plants. Yeah, it's really, I, that's you're, a you're really great right. point. Yeah, we, yeah. We, we often forget about why things are named the way they are or we ignore things. I mean, it yeah. also... It leads to like the ignoring of, uh, for me, particularly with this podcast, is like ignoring of things that are food, and particularly because maybe they're not commercial or they're not what we're used to, or the you know the dominant culture comes in and brings all the European foods, and we Absolutely. kind of ignore the the foods that are from other places or from are from the place where they are, and it's something I'm really interested in. So, um, yeah, thanks thanks for letting me share that with you. Thank you for sharing, Steve. I've been looking forward to that all week. I'm so, and it lived up to every expectation. Thanks so much. This song is called 29 Palms, and it's by Robert Plant. And I remember that this was playing on the radio when I lived in 29 Palms, and it was, like, ridiculously exciting to hear the name of your small town in the desert on the radio. It's a good song. Check out the whole thing. And we're back in Switzerland. To be precise, we are in Zurich, Switzerland. I forgot to mention that at the top of the show. But I've just left that little supermarket we were in at the top of the show, and I picked up something of interest, particularly after hearing Monica talk about rhubarb, and that is a rhubarbvea, which in translated English means a rhubarb tart. It's a nice little pie-like thing that is all rhubarb, some custard, a little crust. And since I don't have a ton of experience with rhubarb, as I mentioned in the show, I thought I would give it a little taste here and give my impressions um, and see how this goes. So here, I'm going to take a little bite. If you don't like eating sounds on podcasts, you feel free to fast forward. Mmm. Mmm, I like that. It's very, 
We've got a little little hint of sourness. This one's not too sweet, which I actually really like. And uh, yeah, for those of you who have not seen rhubarb in a dish like this, it actually does look a lot like little pieces of celery, but definitely does not have the taste of celery. Really a nice tartness, sourness. This is really good. I don't know why I haven't been eating more rhubarb in my life, so got to give thanks to Monica for opening my eyes to rhubarb. And uh, I think I'll just finish this, this little rhubarb tart and not um, subject you, the audience, to any more of my eating sounds. But thanks for listening, and see you on the next episode. My guest on this episode of Rootbound was Monica Shorn. Monica is the festival coordinator for the Environmental Film Festival in the nation's capital and the current champion title holder for Relish and Pickled Peppers in Montgomery County, Maryland. Rootbound is hosted by Steve Ellington. That's this guy right here. Music by Christian Krugeskota. Fake ads by David Lani. Rootbound is a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside, but if you can go outside, make sure you don't get lost in the rhubarb triangle. Paid for by Barkpack.